Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. Have you ever noticed that your love life feels repetitive or predictable? Have you ever noticed patterns to the way you feel about and engage in your romantic relationships? Have you ever reflected on what beliefs and behaviors you bring to your love life that may or may not be serving you? My next guest, Dr. Thomas Jordan, is here to help us explore the way we as men relate to our romantic love lives. In his new book, Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life, Thomas asks us to take a look at our psychological love lives, or what we've learned about love, in order to create a more fulfilling and satisfying love life. He brings with him a wealth of knowledge in this area, from his healing of his own love life, to his work as a clinical psychologist, certified interpersonal psychoanalyst, author, professor, and love life researcher. On a personal level, he identifies as a father, as a son, a brother, and as a husband. So let's not wait any longer. Let's learn more about this man and his unlearning method as we take control of our love lives. Thanks for joining me, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me, Travis. It's a real pleasure to have you. Okay, so let's start by finding out a little bit more about you as an individual man. You're gonna, you have a lot of professional experience to share with us, but I'd love to really connect with you as a, as a person first before uh-huh. we jump into that. Uh, so what are some of the stories that you learned about being a man as you were growing up in the world? Uh, well, I grew up with uh, three brothers, no sisters, in a family that uh, migrated here from uh, Europe, from Portugal. Um, and, uh, uh, I didn't know much about women. Uh, my mother and grandmother were the models, but it was a pretty traditional and patriarchal family. So, uh, the sensitivities of being a man were kind of absent in that world that I grew up in. Um, but I always had an interest in psychology because my mother, um, a bookkeeper by training was a psychologically minded person, uh, sort of naturally. And she and I had long conversations. In fact, I mentioned this in my book. She at one point called me one Sunday morning and after a conversation, she said, you know, I'm responsible for who you are. 
<laughs> and I, said, I said, okay, that's a heavy statement. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> what, what she was alluding to was the, the multiple conversations that we would have about psychology and how she felt about life, her emotional life, uh, was kind of like on-the-job training when I was very young and a young teenager as well. So it was, uh, I think that's where I became interested in psychology in those early conversations with my mother. In fact, I remember as we're approaching the holiday season, you know, in Thanksgiving in my home, there were two groups when the dinner was done. There were the men in the TV room watching football and drinking beer. And then there were the women in the kitchen uh, doing the dishes and cleaning up. And as a young boy, I would go back and forth between these two groups because the conversation in the kitchen was far more interesting than the one in the, in the TV room. I mean, the women in the kitchen were talking about relationships, who's divorcing who, who loves who and doesn't tell anybody. And uh, in the in the TV room, it was just about drinking beer and, and yelling at the TV. So I think that was also an influence on my uh, earliest uh, interest in understanding relationships and uh the deeper aspects of, you know, interpersonal life. Um, but, uh, you know, I went from there to, uh, I originally w wanted to be a uh, zoologist. I was interested in animals when I was at the University of, uh, of Massachusetts, but then it converted to psychology. And from there, I came to New York City for um, training in clinical psychology, then NYU postdoc for training in psychoanalysis, interpersonal psychoanalysis. But I've always been interested in relationships and more recently in love relationships because over the course of my practice, I've noticed that a lot of people are suffering from making the same mistakes over and over again. I myself had an experience, as you alluded to in your introduction, with the love life problems. I was repeating a lot of the unhealthy things my mother and my father taught me about love relationships. So um, working on that in my personal therapy made me realize that there's some things that people can do to identify what kind of repetitions and replications are taking place in their love lives, especially when they're unhealthy. And uh, that turned into the book and these conversations. What? Did you learn you you'd mentioned that you were in more of like a pretty traditional patriarchal kind of family. Yes. What did that teach you about being just a man as an individual person? Um, there was a lot about uh, defending oneself. Uh, when you have two older brothers and one younger brother, uh, two older brothers, especially the one above me, there can be conflicts. And issues that came up. So growing up was a lot of uh, trying to take care of yourself in a group like that. Um, um, I also learned that vulnerabilities should be hidden and not expressed. Uh, you could be taken advantage of or made to feel shame, um, embarrassment. So I learned in my personal therapy that um, growing up, I kept my feelings deep inside of me, and I really didn't have a language for them. And I was kind of action-oriented in the way I, I, I lived. Uh, 
Um, that affected my relationships with people, with women, with friends. And it was really in personal therapy um, that I learned how to access the deeper aspects of myself, how to put language to words, uh, to feel okay about sensitivities and vulnerabilities, especially as they related to relationships and intimacy. So that was a that was work I did on myself, I would say, into my 30s and 40s. Um, my 20s were really a lot of the, you know, uh, family of origin teachings over and over again. My relationships with women were short, oftentimes uh, uh, not very satisfying. Um, <clears throat> I was... Uh, distancing a little bit to protect myself in relationships and taking care of people, sort of what I did in my, uh, in my family of origin with my mother. I kind of tried to help her a lot. My father was a caretaking man, which reinforced that as well. And my mother was a very dependent and controlling person. So um, I emerged from my family of origin really sacrificing my own emotions, keeping them in the background, not really paying attention to them and trying to take care of people. And that was a pattern that I reenacted over and over again with a lot of women that weren't prepared to be in a relationship. And, and even if they were, I perceived them as not being prepared. That's how, how powerful that early learning had been until I realized in my personal work on myself that I was replicating what my mother had taught me. And I began to look at it as something I could change. I appreciate you sharing all of that because I think so often in our romantic relationships, it can be really easy to continue looking to place blame uh, when they don't work out, when certain patterns arise yeah. without really ever taking a look at what are the patterns or what are the behaviors or the beliefs we're bringing into that relationship yes. that continue to perpetuate patterns mm -hmm. of our own experience? Yeah, very tragic thing because every time we have a breakup, I believe it's an opportunity to learn something very valuable about yeah. yourself. Um, and, I, you know, <clears throat> mistakes and troubles and crises are oftentimes the experiences that teach us the most about ourselves. And so to avoid that by just doing something defensive, like blaming the other person, you're not really giving yourself the opportunity to learn much. And that's from that situation. You know. Yeah. Something I find really interesting that you were sharing was you learned a lot about what being a man was, was defense oriented, not showing your vulnerabilities, maybe a little more stoicism sort yeah. of defending from perceived threats. So there's that part of you that either defends or distances uh -huh. with other people. And then you also had a very care caretaking kind of father and a mother that you wanted to caretake for. So uh -huh. you have this really interesting balance by, of pulling people in to care for, but also defending against and pushing out. There's a sort of like a both yeah, ends it, of the it's extreme. An, it's, a, it's an interesting mix. You can take care of others, but you're not taking care of yourself. <laughs> oh, you know? I know that pattern really well. <laughs> Contradiction, right? <laughs> uh, 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 the wounded healer archetype. The one that's always go. trying to out there yes, rescue sir. and help right. others, but oh. then the, 
But then right. the one that can't really turn that in and, and own that for themselves. Right. Yeah. You know, I had, a, 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 in my free associative mind, I had an interview once with someone where what they were talking about was so moving to me, a first interview, that it made me cry. And, I mean, I'm in the role of a therapist, you know, the doctor, this kind of thing. And 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 it was it put me in conflict. Like here I am, tears coming down my eyes as I'm sitting there, and I I this person never came back, which I understand it was overwhelming for them. And I didn't weep, I just teared because something that person was saying made me think of uh, certain painful experiences in my own family. So that's how detached certain experiences were inside of me. So my personal work was really to bring that to the surface, bring it to consciousness where I could integrate it with the rest of me, you know? So that's what happens when we're wounded and we're not aware of the woundings or we're not working on the woundings and we're in the helping profession. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of people in our profession that unfortunately have that problem. I couldn't agree more. It's a soapbox <laughs> that I'm often on is uh, is how often people in the mental health fields or in the helping professions are often doing their own work through their clients, but not actually even aware of that necessarily. A little scary. <laughs> it is really scary. And Particularly make, for the client. <laughs> for sure. I think it makes yeah. sense why there's, like, especially in the male world, there's a lot of resistance to hiring a coach or a therapist. There's some barriers to entry into asking for help from somebody to talking about your problems with somebody, but then to reflect on that not all providers are safe places to be receiving from. That's the thing. You know, there are providers that cross the line. Mm. Uh, there are providers that impose their issues onto their clients and patients. And so that's an imposition coming from the other person. That's not something you're bringing into the office that you need help with. So now you can see how these things can complicate what the consumer is looking for, which is a healing experience, you know, when providers are not conscious. That's why I, I'm in favor as an analyst, uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm really in favor, and I'll tell anybody this, I'm in favor of caretakers having therapy experiences. Mm -hmm. I, I think it should be a requirement. Um, uh, there's a funny way to say it. I wouldn't go to a shrink that wasn't shrunk. <laughs> <laughs> Watch right out for you. shrinks that aren't shrunk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm really with you on that one. So you talked about accessing deeper parts of yourselves and yourself and how important that was for you to actually transforming some of your relational patterns. If, if a man is listening and there, he's thinking about how do I even access those deeper parts of myself? that my culture taught me not to value or taught me not to really develop. What are the early steps that a man can take toward to sort of access that those? Deeper well, I mean, <clears throat> for someone who's never been in therapy um, and reaches a point in life, and oftentimes it's middle age, uh, broadly defined as 30 to 70. <laughs> there might that be a little self-interest involved in that. <laughs> oh, well, look, I rap feet on myself already. Right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> that I think I, I like journaling. I, I love journaling. I, I, um, I recommend it to my patients. I do it myself. 
Um, I think journaling, being able to allow oneself to write with a sense of uh, confidentiality, self-created confidentiality, a diary kept for the purpose of writing down one's thoughts, inner conflicts, uh, stuff that comes to mind, memories, dreams. I think that kind of journal brings into consciousness aspects of the experience that might not be as available if you're just sitting somewhere thinking about it. Because And, and, and it's a nice advantage because you can reread it. You can look at it. You can contemplate it. You can go back to it tomorrow and do it again. And so I really, uh, I really advise that for someone who's beginning to think about the need for some internal work but has ambivalences. And like you said, at the early stage where they really want to make sure it's something that they feel that they really need. So the journaling, I think, will open it up a little bit. It'll be private. They'll have the decision to this, you know, decide what to do with it from that point. And I think it's a good beginning. Yeah, I love that. I love that that's an opportunity for somebody to have some private space to reflect on their own lives. Yeah. And with it being in a tangible space to return back to, you can notice yeah. patterns. You can notice ways of patterns in the way you think, patterns in the way that you're experiencing life or experiencing relationships over time uh -huh. rather than just moment to moment to moment. Right, like right, you can actually right. see a, a little bit more of a picture painted yeah. based on. And on if you can let yourself write without concern about grammar or spelling, it's good. Like That's an automatic truth. writing experience where you're just letting your feelings do the writing instead of your cognitive, you know, uh, censoring or editing. That's such an important point because it's definitely where I even for myself where I notice that I have resistance to going into a journaling practice is because I judge myself in the process uh -huh. or I'm editing, off, right? I'm editing while I'm actually trying to free write and talk and share yeah. A Put paragraph of just curse words will do the trick. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's oh a perfect <laughs> I think that's a perfect piece of permission to give to men, <laughs> exactly. men as they're accessing right. their feelings. All right, I'm ready now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I love that. Um, thanks for thanks for helping us point to some of the early stages to start accessing those deeper parts of ourselves. Because you've been doing that work on yourself for so long, you've been in a therapy practice of your own. And you talked about that love life is sort of the, the fascination that you're focused on right now in the work that you're sharing. Help me understand what, when you have been reflecting on your own personal journey, what were some of the patterns that you learned about love or some of the beliefs you learned about love from growing up in your family? My mother taught me that women were dependent, controlling, and self-centered. And uh, wow, <laughs> uh, that's a heavy, heavy burden for women uh, to hold <laughs> the Trinity. <laughs> um, and I proceeded to look for that, think I found it even when it wasn't there, which is the scariest part of all, which made me realize, by the way, that and I talk about this in the book, that there's a psychological love life. That was the beginnings of that realizing that I was carrying around a blueprint, a template. Um, that's the center of the book, uh, 
the book's in three parts. It talks about the dis disappointing love life, the psychological love life, and the unlearning method. So the psychological love life is really the concept, an important centering concept, that we have a love life that's psychological. And that means that we carry it around, and it shapes the experiences we're going to have in our love lives. And in most instances, we're not conscious of what's in our psychological love life. At least not yet. Um, I wrote the book to try to encourage people to become conscious of the psychological love life, because once you become conscious of it, you can make change in it. So I went around with a psychological uh, love life in my teens and 20s and beginning 30s that had that three-part you know, dependency control and self-centeredness as a template. That was what an eligible partner was psychologically. And my job was to help that person, try to analyze, if not in interaction, in my own mind. So I was replicating what I had done with my mother over and over again. And it always brought me to a miserable ending. And then I would be alone for a while. Um, and then gravitate back to doing it again and again and again and again. And I reached a point of, uh, of just feeling that I was a step away from resignation, which means that it's hopeless. You know, it's like, you know, this is just going to keep happening. Why don't I just expect it and be defensive and just have sex and don't be interested in relationship, that kind of thinking. Um, but it was at that point that I, uh, I had some uh, some women friends that it was like an internship. <laughs> I think of it that way, where I learned about uh, sensitivities. I learned about expressing feelings just in the fabric of being with uh, these people. One in particular became my best buddy. It's like a buddy relationship. There was no sexual aspects to it. It was just a um, a buddy relationship, and it was very intimate on that level, and I learned a lot. In fact, I got married shortly after that relationship kind of fizzled out. Um, so it was helpful. I hope I helped her with the, uh, <laughs> the opposite, you know, like a, a good guy in a relationship, mm. a non-sexual good guy type of thing, because I think sometimes women don't have a concept of men as non-sexual. Mm you know, beings, they, they think of men as, you know, like trying to have sex all the time. And that's what they're focused. And there's all kinds of uh, vernacular for that, if you will, you know, but I think that what gets what, for women, what gets lost is relating to a man as an intimate person, the intimacy of emotion, that intimacy. And, and sometimes when I use that word, people think of sex. Yeah, but that's not necessarily what intimacy means. Intimacy connotes an, a closeness that can be sexual, but it can also be emotional. It could be intellectual. It could be a lot of things. But I'm talking about emotional intimacy and the ability to be emotionally intimate, and that's sometimes lost if people get locked into very limited ways of perceiving each other. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I appreciate you bringing up the, how you define the difference between like sexual intimacy versus emotional intimacy, because I think in many ways, 
as you were saying, women don't have the experience of being able to relate to men beyond, like, mm-hmm. without that sexual intimacy uh-huh. question being there, that tension being there. And yeah. I think that's really true. And I actually think that if we broaden the definition, not it's not just women who don't have those experiences of what it's like to be near a good man. It's we as men don't have that either. Like, mm-hmm. in some ways, I notice in my work that how much craving there is between men for mm-hmm. emotional intimacy, for uh-huh. way mo- new models of intimacy that don't involve sex, obviously, uh-huh. for, for heterosexual men. Uh-huh. but Or that, homosexual men. Yeah, and homosexual. That's no, absolutely right. I've worked right. with homosexual patients, male patients. I mean, a lot of my work in the 90s was helping men come out of the closet. Yeah. That happened a lot in the 90s in my particular practice. Um, And oftentimes, our relationship was a vehicle to provide an experience of emotional intimacy because being a a homosexual man, a gay man brought up in a heterosexual family, there's oftentimes a disconnect with the heterosexual father that deprives the gay son from the experience of that emotional intimacy you and I are talking about. And that's a big loss. And oftentimes it's an issue, it's a topic that emerges in a therapy experience that's lasting a while where you know two people, two men are working through that experience and eventually get to that, especially when the father gets talked about as a person with limitations in this area. Uh, it could be homophobia involved in that for the father. Um, so it's an important issue. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. It does it, being a gay man myself, it does feel that way that it also is within, um, gay men that we also want intimacy that isn't necessarily sexual intimacy, uh-huh. that we don't have models for that either. And we often in our community replace emotional intimacy with sexual. intimacy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's a, and that, that's, that's, I think that generalizes to anybody, right? Any coupling can do that where sex is. And oftentimes you hear about it in heterosexual relationships where if men are going to get close to the woman, because there's been a a disagreement or a fight, it's oftentimes the pursuit is sexual. You know, let's, let's make love to make Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And what gets lost is the intimate interactions that are part of that process that uh, perhaps are, you know, qualifiers that kind of, you know, you're, you're apologizing through an exchange of understandings about something that was a, a difference between two people. And, and you're going through that before you make love, you know, as, as opposed to it's the lovemaking itself that does the reparation that provides the intimacy. Yes, but not entirely, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, you it know. seems a bit of a blunt tool for a, a pretty nuanced. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a pretty no nuanced. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about this blueprint that's created for most of us around our psychological love life. So it's important for us to recognize that there's the experience or the emotional quality of being in love, but then there's also the way that we relate to that psychologically, that love uh-huh. life that right. either maintains that love 
or it diminishes that love. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Uh, it what well what it does when it's unconscious is it uh, forms the it, it provides the information that a person uses to replicate relationship experience. Um, the repetition and the replication that you can notice in a love relationship. And it can be a healthy, it can be a healthy love life where you're replicating healthy themes that you've learned growing up. I mean, that that happens a lot. In fact, I think it happens 50% of the time if we look at a 50% divorce rate. That means that 50% of the time people are working out differences, they're apologizing, they're able to learn something from their differences, they're growing together, all this good stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> but what I'm concerned with is the other 50%, where people are getting into interactions where they're replicating experiences that are unhealthy. And the psychological love life is the learning, the unconscious learning that's taken place in the person's life that is being used as a blueprint to recreate those experiences. Hmm. And what I talk about in the book is that I wanted to go as deeply as I can into that unconscious learning aspect. Cause I, as an analyst, that, that really, that, that, that turns me on. I, I, I like the, the fact that a lot of our experience is in the hands of this unconscious learning. We're hmm. learning from day one. And it's not just a classroom that we're learning in. Our families of origin are a classroom. So we're learning by the relationships we're in. We're learning by observing how people relate to other, each other in families. We're learning by instruction in some cases. Uh, when older members of the family want to teach lessons to younger members, and they're not even thinking they're in a classroom or something. They're just learning through experience and storytelling, for example, right? So what I'm concerned about is how this learning sits in the blueprint and is really how people recreate and repeat uh, unhealthy experience over and over again in their love lives. So I was interested in my book to decode that unconscious learning so that people can start to disrupt it, um, challenge it, uh, do something better, um, move their love life in a better direction. Uh, basically, I, I like to think of it as teaching people how to, and I use this phrase a lot, work on their love lives. Mm. Because we work on other things. We work on our financial lives, our social lives, our medical lives, our occupational lives. Uh, this is something we do. So working on our love lives is also something that's necessary to do. And by the way, I think it's been avoided because the family of origin, the sacred family of origin, is the place where these lessons are learned. Now, in the 20th century, I know it was a little bit harder to be critical of the family of origin. We we protected it in a lot of different ways. We protected it legally in some ways that we don't these days in terms of, you know, how we think about the family and how we handle the family. And I think we also protected it psychologically and emotionally. Like we don't No, no, that's the family. Where did you learn about love? Oh, my family thought, taught me how. 
you know, I'm not being critical of what they taught me. In fact, it's familiar, homey, and I learned it well. Okay, if it's healthy, fine, everything's cool. If it's not healthy, then chances are you're replicating some aspect of that familiarity over and over again. And that's a disappointing love life. Wow, that's a really good way of explaining it. So you talk about this blueprint as something that we learn. Is the Would it be accurate to say that the, the biggest mechanism for our learning is our family of origin, our relationships with our parents and our siblings? Broadly defined, uh, we can, a family of origin can include father figures, mother figures, brother figures. I'm, I'm talking about all the adults that give us examples of what love relationships are. And I'm not just talking about romantic. Uh, my definition of love life is every and any relationship involving the emotion of love, past and present. So I'm including everybody you love from the moment you're born can teach you about a love relationship. Romantic love relationship is oftentimes the type of relationship people think of when I use the phrase love life, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily so. Your love life is much broader. And here's the difficult part. I can bring an unhealthy pattern from a relationship between myself and my mother, my father, a brother, a sister into my love life. So the fact that the earlier relationship was not romantic doesn't matter. What matters is it's all under the umbrella of love life. I'm, I'm hoping that's clear, but I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I appreciate you delineating that because it was actually one of the questions that I had for you was this, does this just apply to our romantic relationships or can it be other types of relationships? And so it sounds like Definitely. you're broadly defining it. Oh, yeah. So that it includes anybody that we are connected to, love, are attached to. Uh-huh. Um, right. Build lives with. Right. And, and, and I, I, <clears throat> in the interviews that I've had so far about the book, I, I like to include that the book is not about love. The book is about love relationships. Love is a unpredictable, mysterious, it's psychological, biological. Maybe it's genetic. Some people are saying it's spiritual. It's all these things. And we could be in love more than once in life. It's a wonderful experience. That's not the problem. The problem is the relationship we build to contain the love. If you build a healthy relationship, love can grow and thrive. It's like a potted plant. It's healthy. It's growing. If you build an unhealthy relationship, because that's what you've been unconsciously taught to build, Love can be stifled, twisted out of shape, destroyed over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. And and I, I love that you broaden the definition so that it can include lots of different kinds of relationships. Because for some people, the goal isn't one monogamous um, opposite sex partner. It can be polyamorous it can be uh non-romantic but intimate like people have different experiences of love uh -huh. and so i love that this broader definition is more inclusive rather than just more of like a narrow 
male-female couple. Uh-huh. Right. Right. It's between two individuals. Yeah. You know? And so my background, my early studies in college were was around family studies and human development, really focusing on um, one of the major pieces was around like attachment styles. Uh-huh. How would you delineate the difference between what you're talking about around this psychological love, love life, this blueprint that we create, and those early learnings we have that are, that are often nonverbal that are about our attachment styles or the way we make connections and attach to people in healthy or un- unhealthy ways? Um, attachment styles. Um, uh, give me an example of an attachment style. So I think the major categories would be like a securely attached person, somebody that uses their, as a child, uses their parents as a safe home base from which to explore the world uh-huh. and make their world bigger, but to come back right. to that safe home base. There's right. an anxious attached per, uh, child uh-huh. who yeah. might be like uh-huh. afraid when the parent is leaving. You're talking about attachment theory kinds yeah, of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 basically, yeah. yeah. See, I... I, I like that stuff. I think it's all under the rubric of interpersonal relations. I, that's where I put it. Uh, Balby's stuff, I think, is, is a part of the reference to that. Yeah. And I, I think that um, the attachment styles would be the, the outcome of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the inner psychological um, uh, template that's going to be used to set up the security in attachment, set up the anxiety or fearfulness or paranoia in attachment. So uh, when you present, if you talk about an attachment style, uh, let's use a secure attachment style. I'm thinking there was healthy relationship experience that taught that individual that intimacy is a wonderful experience it's emotionally satisfying it's safe uh people don't hurt each other when you're vulnerable so uh i'm i'm talking about the 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 what's in the mind that's going to be taken into an interpersonal relationship to create the detachment that that, that you've described when there's anxiety when there's fear um i'm predicting that there's a a number of different re- unhealthy relationship experiences that could result in that, in, in, in that insecure or anxious attachment. So, um, these, I, I'm, in my work, I'm interested in gathering all the different types of uh, relationship experiences that can teach us something unhealthy that might result in, uh, an anxious attachment style. So, um, the attachment style can be the outcome of a number of different relationship experiences that have taught the individual that relationship attachments are difficult, are problematic. I listed 10 in the book. I have 11 now. The list keeps growing. So, okay, uh, abandonment, abuse, control, dependency, um, dishonesty, uh, exploitation, intrusion, mistrust, uh, neglect, rejection, self-centeredness. That's the list I have so far. These relationship experiences, when someone's exposed to them early in life, they can result in these different unhealthy attachments that you're referencing. And and I saw it in my, my work, not only in relation to me, but in relation to the, the figures in the patient's life. 
So it, it, it in, in relation to me, I mean, I, as an interpersonal analyst, I'm very interested and very sensitive to the type of relationship people set up with me in the mm -hmm. room, right? So if they're setting up an anxious, Tom Jordan is going to hurt me kind of relationship, or, you know, I got to be careful around you kind of relationship, I can begin to think of, okay, what do I have to look for in this person's history that's going to teach me something about what they may have learned about relationships that hurt them? over time and is now being replicated in the room with me. So that that's one way that I get a deeper view of what's going on in this person's life that's resulted in the particular attachment. Um, as opposed to meeting someone who's intimate right from the start and comfortable and everybody wants to hang around with them. That's it. I mean, we've met people like that as well, you yeah, know, for sure. <laughs> and you said, well, that guy's pretty healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I had 20 years of therapy. Okay. All right. <laughs> I love how you bring in this element of how, how even in the relational dynamic between you and somebody that you're working with as a patient, that you can even sense in the relational dynamic that they start to bring up, you can sense how, what some of their blueprint is. Yes. One of the things that I love, why I love that is because I do a version of coaching that involves horses. And so I take people out and give them experiential learning where they have to build a relationship with a being that doesn't speak the same language as they do. Oh, interesting. Uh -huh. And so in that, what I found, find over time is, is that, people's blueprints will start to show up in the relationship they're building with their horse partner in oh, the activity cool. because cool. Uh -huh. because intimacy, connection, boundaries, um, initiating, following, all of those things are similar in our human relationships as they are in our in any relationship we build. Yeah. And yeah. so I can see a lot of like it sort of brings to the surface people's blueprints so that we can reflect yeah. on it, look at it, decide whether or not that's serving them or not, and then yeah. give them opportunities to challenge it, but then also uh -huh. to try out something new. And the beautiful part about horses is they don't live in story like we as humans do. And so uh -huh. they actually respond to the moment a little more uh -huh. rapidly uh -huh. than we as humans do. So like in our interpersonal human relationships, you might shift a pattern within yourself and it takes a while for the other person to notice that you've shifted because they're uh -huh. still living in the story of who you've always been. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those horses don't do that. They shift immediately. Uh-huh. And so you get to see sort of how how do I work with this relationship, my own blueprint. Uh-huh. And how what impact will that have on the external environment if I play that out a little bit. Interesting. And you uh you're a a rider, you ride horses, you're you uh, is that how you ended up in I'm not. Time. So, yeah. So I rode a couple times as a kid, but my work uh -huh. is all groundwork. So it's on the I ground. See. We take all the normal control mechanisms away from, from, yeah. the, from, we're not riding. We're not using a saddle or a bridle. I do give people a, a piece of rope, a long line that they can work with so that uh -huh. they can communicate in a, in a large way if they need to create uh -huh. safety for themselves. Yeah. But otherwise, it's really relational and and, and like what is it bringing up for the person as they build this relationship? And yeah, and when you when you move the language to the side, I was thinking the nonverbal is oftentimes so so powerful because yeah. 
It's access to the emotion is right there. They're right next to each other. So expression. I've had patients who have spoken to me about horses that they owned and loved. And I mean, I can recall conversations where people have said this horse was a loved being. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was more so than a regular pet. <laughs> this was like, you know, just the level of love, as I'm recalling the conversation, was quite deep. The sensitivity in that animal is a lot more than cats and dogs, I guess, is what I'm trying to. Yeah, they're a bit more connected to their natural instinct. While we have domesticated them, they our, our cats and dogs are a bit more bred to our neuroses. The horses yeah. are a little more <laughs> right. connected to their prey animal right. flight end of the spectrum. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. and yet the side the part of their brain that controls um emotion the emotional centers is just as big as the one in a human brain. Yeah. So they have the oh. same capacity for emotion as we do. They just do it differently. And they haven't they don't have that part of the brain that forms story. They can make associations, but they don't make up stories and project yeah, yeah. it out into the Which future. People can get stuck in, like you were alluding to before. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Just to keep that story. Much which like, is what I'm talking about with a psychological love life. Basically, it's a story. Right. A exactly. Story, like right? what you were saying with you learned from your mom that women are dependent and uh, -huh. uh controlling. And self-centered, right? Self-centered. Like that right. becomes the story at uh -huh. which you bring into the space. And so horses don't have that ability to create story like that. And so they give us the chance to be in relationship at the emotional, nonverbal level uh -huh. without and watch another being manage or have a different completely completely different blueprint for their emotional landscape yeah. or the way they be in relationship therapeutic animals very mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of research right now around treatment of things like ptsd in horse work so there's a lot of like uh, veterans yeah. programs that are doing work with vets who have uh, are suffering with ptsd something about intertwining your nervous system with with a being that's that sensitive and learning how to navigate a sensitive flighty nervous system can support um other people and being able to do that with their own nervous system right right i i was just thinking a moment ago that <clears throat> as an analyst uh i believe my personal analysis helped me do something to my stories, <laughs> if I could put it that way. <clears throat> my stories were made conscious and reiterated over and over again to the point where I could understand how my stories had a lot to do with how I was living, relating, um, living in the world. And once you become aware of your stories to a certain degree, I think it's easier to, um, I want to say soften them. <laughs> Somehow uh, they're not as um, powerful in determining what we do or don't do. And something else emerges. It's almost like a, uh, a sense of the present individuality of a person the ability to choose to be conscious to have a sense of ownership over one's own life to not be ruled by the past as much 
And I, I see that as a as a goal in life, you know, getting out from under some of the things we've learned in life that don't allow us to be who we are meant to be, if you will. You know, I my mentors were people who appreciated the individuation process. Yeah. In fact, I, I wrote a book about it in 1999, a, a psychoanalytic book where I believe that unique individuality is something that can emerge uh, in experience. And it's different than the relational um, influences we receive. I'm talking about that unique individuality we bring with us into the world. Where it comes from, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe the universe is really our original parent, you know, mm. but this individuality coexists with these stories we collect. And when you're in the presence of an analyst who can see that individuality or be sensitive to it or invite it to the surface, uh, celebrate it when it shows up. And oftentimes it's subtle or shy. It's been beaten back in life. You know, it comes out of the closet. It, it, it's hiding behind the person. And I think that a successful treatment, uh, what you see is people that are being their individuality more openly, more directly expressing from that part of themselves. Uh, and I, I like that way of thinking of the work I do. I, I, I see myself as trying to get to know the individuality of my patients beyond their stories as time progresses in our relationship. I love that both of us come to the same, same place where you talk in your book and I talk in my work around this unlearning process. So much of what we do is helping people unlearn who they learn to be in order to survive or receive uh -huh. belong in this world uh -huh. and to really get them back in touch with that individual element uh -huh. to get Absolutely. them into that innocence that came, mm -hmm. that came into this world with individuality with choice with purpose yeah so they can have new experience yeah i mean think about it if you don't if you don't separate yourself a little bit from the past what you're experiencing day to day is regurgitated past yeah. i mean your past your stories as we're talking about shape the experiences you're having uh in your love life your psychological love life is dominating your love life experience. So I, I think the unlearning process uh, has three major steps. That's what I, I work with. Step one being to identify in consciousness what's in your psychological love life. So that kind of self-reflection allows you to put some, put some definition to what you're carrying around, what you've learned. And I, I have a list of questions in the book that help you do that. Like the first one is, who taught me about love relationships? And oftentimes it's a question you have to think about a little bit. It's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a quick answer, you know. And, and as you think about the individuals, and it could be more than one, that have taught you about love relationships, that begins to orient you toward where this learning came from. How did they teach me? Did they teach me in a relationship? Did they teach me by instruction? Did I did I learn by observation? These are the 
different major different ways that that the learning can take place and also you know which relationships experiences taught me about love relationship i learned that you can have some unhealthy relationship experiences that didn't get into your love life that don't show up in your love life i've met a lot of people who've said to me no I, I never wanted to be like my father was like my, with my mother or how my mother was with my father. Um, and they somehow, without treatment, came to understand consciously that they didn't want to replicate that, that they didn't want to repeat that. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of people who unwittingly repeated mm. these unhealthy patterns. So they didn't really get to a point of saying, I don't want to do this like they did it. So, um, and, and also, uh, in the book, I talk about after effects, these, these relationship experiences that we're exposed to, um, we have after effects, and the two most common after effects that I find are defensiveness, and an effort to try to change our love partners. And uh, you can imagine how they complicate one's love life. I mean, when you're defensive, uh, you either avoid love relationships or you're distant in them or you're in conflict all the time. These are different major ways in which people's defensiveness can show up in their love life. And when you're trying to change people, I mean, that's really that brings a lot of misery because people don't change because someone wants them to. All you get is resentment and resistance. And there's a subgroup of that group that I also believe is an effort to try to change someone. Um, I'm sure you've met people who have this notion they're going to find the perfect partner. So they do a lot of substitution. Okay, next, 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 and hoping that there's perfection at some point that'll show up. And I think that's also a, another form of, uh, of an after effect to an unhealthy relationship experience earlier in life. So those after effects, I think, are also things that people have to become aware of. Um, in the course of understanding their psychological love life, those after effects are part of what is in the psychological love life. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to get too far afield with that, but <laughs> no, you're doing great. And I love it because I, I'm just sitting here imagining that the listeners are hearing their own story in what you're sharing. I know right. I am. I see, I'm like, well, how dare he describe my love life <laughs> in such clear ways? <laughs> he doesn't know me. How does he, how does he know that about me? Um, so as I was sharing with you around the horsework that I do, I really uh, appreciate and value an experiential element to our learning. So you and I have been talking some about your own experience and being, and you actually do a really beautiful job in the book. You sort of lay out the theory, lay out the process, but then you take the back end of the book to apply it to your own love life, your own psychological blueprint. And so I was wondering if you'd be up for helping me explore a little bit of my psychological love life, my own blueprint as a way of continuing the experiential learning around this topic that you're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. So if I was coming to you feeling very disappointed in my love life and I, uh -huh. which I have felt that at plenty of times in my life, I'm not in that in this moment, but, uh -huh. but I can remember what those feelings are and I can remember some of the work I've been doing. How might I start finding out what are the pieces of my psychological love life? I, I would ask you about your disappointments. 
and, yeah. and what they what they consist of, and get a sense of uh, what you might be repeating. So can we do that right now? Can I share with you what? Some Absolutely, of the, share yeah. what you'd like. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about my love life with my friends, with with community, with a sense of belonging with people. So I found the disappointments to feel like there have been places in my friendships where uh, where there's either a rejection or an abandonment when things get too heavy, when things get too hard. I noticed that in other people's actions, like they step away. But I also notice myself starting to step away quickly as things get a little difficult, like, oh, this is too much to handle. And so I notice this feeling of almost a distrust in some of my intimate friendships where Either it's like direction you or them. Yeah. It's like, it feels like it started with them bringing that to the table. And now as a way of coping, it's like, oh, I almost feel like this lack of trust in myself towards building, continuing to take steps forward that I'm starting to now lean backwards. And some of it, I think, is some healthy learning for myself. And some of it is reinforcing this feeling like I can't trust people. Trust people because rejection may be an outcome. Mm -hmm. Is that word familiar to you? Yeah. Yeah, growing up growing up as a gay boy in this world, yeah, I could say rejection. Uh -oh. is <laughs> <laughs> okay. Really I mean, right. So I would think in terms of that word rejection and want to understand how that consists of a personalized experience for you as an individual i'd want to know about the different rejections you've had in your life as a gay person as a person in general and try to put them together to see whether or not there's a part of you that still anticipates hurt uh, because your reaction is to avoid is to distance. And that's one of those after effects that I mentioned a moment ago. It's a common defense when it comes to interpersonal relatedness. Um, so what could be happening is you're predicting rejection. Uh, the behavior you encounter among these people you're talking about is rejecting to you. You're, you're interpreting it. Whether it is or it isn't is not as important as the fact that you're interpreting it so, and you're reacting in a self-protective or defensive manner. So I think that the mileage would be in understanding how, how you experience rejection in your life and any uh, remnants of that. Because you seem like a pretty conscious and uh, aware person who's been working on himself and continues to do so. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I say remnants because you've probably uh, talked about rejection. Yeah. Situation sure. of counseling, therapy, or something like that. So I think of it as a lifelong repair that gets easier and better, but it's there. So rejection is one of those important um, and painful uh, experiences. Um, I can understand as a gay man, rejection was common in your life, unfortunately, earlier. Mm -hmm. I hope that as we become more aware of freedom, we will have uh, less 
damage from rejection as people learn how to live together better and better more and more as time goes on i'm hopeful yeah no i think i think the key the words that i heard that i that sort of landed i felt it landed my body was that anticipation of hurt uh-huh. that there are remnants of those anticipation of hurt that play uh-huh. out for me yeah so then from that layer of recognizing that oh i have this this remnant in me that that is anticipating hurt and therefore either steps back before i can get hurt uh-huh or is or is playing that out in my relationships with other people yeah what do you what do i do as a man that has recognized that i have that remnant but i also have evidence where people have hurt me and so yes. what's the next stage of like how do yes. i confront that right so we we've done step 1 we've identified an unhealthy relationship experience you've been exposed to and how it was repeating or replicating in your life yeah. Now we go to step two, right? Step two is to using consciousness to begin to challenge the automatic aspects of this experience in you. Um, the way it's set up right now, that anticipation produces a reaction and that uh, becomes a, like a cyclic thing. It, it, it goes A, B, C, A, B, C. It happens over and over again, reinforcing itself. So we we want to, and each time you do that, by the way, I each time you recoil in self-protection, um, what gets lost is whether or not the person indeed was going to be rejecting or you were subjectively interpreting it so. That's one thing that sits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, needing analysis, so to speak. Um, but you're reinforcing this after effect, this defensive mode of coping each time you do it. So it's a self-sustaining, self-reinforcing thing. So we're going to try to challenge that, disrupt it. Those are the words I'm going to use at stage two and invite you to do what human beings can do. We can split for a good cause into the automatic part of Travis that wants to just do the same thing over and over again, because that's what he's family familiar with, familiar with what you experience. Tricky wordplay there. (laughs) And the other part of you that had this conversation and said, wait a minute, I don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. That sucks. I want to do something different. Let me put my finger in that clock let me stop the the hands from moving let me let me do something to mess with the uh, automaton aspect of this and that's the challenge and it produces an interesting thing because that kind of therapeutic conflict between what was and what could be now in in your awareness uh, slows everything down allows you to begin asking questions like um was it really going to be rejection rejecting or did i think it was going to be rejecting what do i know about this individual are they usually rejecting am i getting that right maybe i'm not getting it right in this instance or this instance um let me let me ask some questions let me get familiar with how this automatic thing that i do might not be an accurate perception of what's going on and now i get a sense of how dominant this old rejection is in predicting 
how I'm going to react. Now, I'm going to rob some of the juice of that. I'm not going to let it control me. That's stage two. So you're on the scene messing with this automatic unconscious process. You're using consciousness. You're challenging yourself, which is always, in my mind, a step toward real change to challenge ourselves uh, with the awareness, with the understanding that there's uh, questions about what you're doing. There may be a better way. There's something unhealthy about it. Um, and the motivation to do this is wanting to be healthier. Uh, perhaps there's good friends that you're not interacting with or connecting with as a consequence of this. Uh, if you're a single man, there could be intimate people who could end up being love lovers, uh, quality lovers that you're not able to connect with. So that that would be motivating. Step three, can I move to step three now? Yes, please step, do. Step three. <laughs> step three is, I believe, where the new experience can be uh, introduced. And that is also a consequence of consciousness. So I'm talking about an applied form of consciousness. It's not just becoming aware of something, you're actively applying it to experience. Now, step three is we want, and I like to think of the opposite. Opposite is a wonderful word. I think there's a lot of therapeutic meaning in the word opposite. And another word I like to use associated with opposite is correction, corrective. The corrective for rejection is acceptance. That's the opposite of rejection. So some process of acceptance has to come into these situations that would produce rejection in order for you to be able to discriminate a little bit better between healthy and unhealthy. Because right now you're doing a lot of anticipatory rejection, and that's dominating. So introducing some acceptance into it is, okay, let me see if I can make a judgment. Okay, Paul, I'm going to accept him. I'm not going to react to him. I'm going to go a step further. I'm not going to let myself recoil because I've made a judgment that he's somebody I think is not going to be a hurtful, toxic person. And I'm seeking a new kind of experience where I'm not just recoiling all the time. I'm going to take this a couple of steps. I'm going to take a risk over here. I'm going to try something different. And being able to do that provides you an opportunity to have a new experience that's corrective because now the rejection is not in control of your emotional life as much as it has been because we're starting to cut that back with acceptance and you're having a successful experience. And even if it doesn't turn out well, you can continue doing those experiments because you understand that that's the only way you're going to unlearn rejection. So the unlearning process involves identifying what's been learned, um, challenging what's been learned to begin to interfere with the automatic aspects of it, make it conscious, take it from the unconscious. And the third uh, step is to begin to engineer corrective emotional experiences that in and of itself is therapeutic. And I believe that these opposites exist for all these unhealthy relationship experiences. For me, I learned, if I can kind of 
go to my internship, I learned from my uh, female friend that women can be independent, not controlling, and intimate, which is the opposite of self-centered. When I learned that lesson, I began seeing women who were independent, not controlling, and intimate. Uh, it's almost I couldn't see it before because that story, to use your word, was dominating my perception, my expectations, my anticipations, right? So I started seeing that. Victoria shows up. Mm. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and she's independent, not controlling, and intimate. Wow. <laughs> it's like once you take the blinders off that are caused by those the psychological blueprint and the remnants that are there, a whole nother life experience is possible. An opposite. You, yes. People have come to my office and have tragically told me stories of how they grew up in a violent home and married violent people. Now, the person that tells me this story is not with violent people 24-7. Mm. They're walking around in the general community. There are people they come up against who are not violent. Maybe they go to a party. Here are all the violent men. Here are the nonviolent men. Whatever. The point is they're only seeing violent men. That's how powerful this psychological story or template or blueprint is. And that's tragic because you can burn up a whole lifetime making the same tragic, unhappy decision or not decision or just replication over and over again with misery. Yeah. I mean, marrying violent men is no fun. And you and I, as professionals in this space, experience that all the time, witnessing that with our clients, where we get to watch their repetitive patterns. Re trauma, trauma, re trauma, trauma, yeah. re trauma. So it sounds to me like your book is really about helping someone put consciousness and uncover their the the tapes they're operating on already that are more on the subconscious side that only really let them see one option. Uh -huh. that, that put the blinders on and only expect one thing from life. Then the second step is doing that healthy kind of splitting, which is to recognize, well, what else do I believe? Not just that, but what else do I believe? So that you can hold multiple truths at once. Mm -hmm. By being able to open the aperture up and see more than one truth, you get the option to start exploring this other truth that is maybe not as well, well enforced, but is something you also believe in and something you also value. Right. And in doing that, then you can start to create examples in your outside world that provide opposite kinds of experiences from that original blueprint, therefore shifting the blueprint. Is where the healing comes in. Yeah, 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 you, I hear that. You've allowed yourself to do the opposite, which provides an opportunity to heal what was essentially traumatic to your love life. I think this work that you're bringing is so important. As I reflect on my own journey with my own like romantic love life, I can see where one of the blueprints I was operating under was being in relationships with men who were sometimes in the relationship and sometimes out of it. They were sort of non-committal or ambivalent at times. And I noticed at a point 
just before I got into my relationship that I'm in now that I just celebrated my 40th anniversary with mm-hmm. that I noticed that I had associated love with that dragging feeling that came from chasing dragging after, dragging, dragging. Uh-huh. it like uh-huh. this drag towards like wanting uh-huh. to chase somebody wanting to like uh-huh. make sure they stayed around and didn't leave me that re- uh-huh. almost rejection piece yes and when I recognized that I had equated love and that feeling that didn't really match up with what love I actually mm-hmm. uh, right, yeah right. that didn't love. it didn't really match what I was what my true value systems are around love and what I actually know love to feel like. And so I got it very clearly in that message that it was time to rewrite what I associated with the Uh feeling of love. And in doing that work, it opened me up for a partner who I never have had to chase one. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And let me mention that, you know, when pursuit is um, the dominating dynamic, It's very possible to find people who fit the dynamic. Oh, I found them. Oh, I found them. (laughs) (laughs) And and, I mean, think about that. Uh, You could be saying to yourself and others, you know, I'm I'm really looking for somebody I can connect with, somebody I can love, somebody I'm going to stay in a relationship with. But when you're in the presence of eligible people, picking people who who are ambivalent or so true. non-committal or not so available true. emotionally, which mm-hmm. is a common way to describe it. It's like, wait a minute. I'm, and that's what you're saying, like these the splits. I'm looking for this, and I'm always finding this. Yeah. See, and I get suspicious, like, wait a minute. Okay, you're always finding this because this is familiar, or this is something that influenced you, or you learned something where – eligibility is defined in this way or you're supposed to engage in this dynamic because it has some kind of meaning some kind of belief is behind it some kind of experience is supporting it so the more aware we are of these things that's you know awareness is a wonderful asset that and learning you know it's just unbelievable that's really our greatest our greatest asset i think Completely. Well, I think that that piece around awareness is something that your book does so well. So the book is Learn to Love, Guide to Healing with Your Disappointing Love Life. And it really helps us reflect on what have I learned about love relationships? What have I learned about love? So that once I have that consciousness, I can then challenge it, find out what else I believe, and then start to figure out new experiences that will help me redesign the blueprint that I've been carrying along. Nice way to put it. Redesign the blueprint. Absolutely. For success. So I encourage everybody that's listening to actually go out and grab a copy of the book, Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. If people are interested in finding out more about you, Thomas, and the work you're doing the work you and your wife do together or where they can buy the book, where might they find more information about you in the yeah, world? It's, uh, I have a website called lovelifelearningcenter.com. And the book is available most booksellers, amazon.com. Got it. And as a way of just closing this up, is there if there's one piece of advice you would give to men around love life, what would that uh, piece of advice be? It, uh, it would be your feelings matter. And I'm going to describe how they matter. Your feelings matter in the sense that they say a lot about who you are, what you need, um, what matters to you, 
as an individual, as a person. And I would encourage men to value their feelings, learn about their feelings, consider it something that they can understand deeply and learn how to express, talk about, because when feelings matter, um, life changes. It becomes better. Health and happiness are a consequence of feelings that matter. When we allow our emotional life to speak to us, to become a basis of understanding of who we are, our health improves and our happiness improves. I've seen it more than once. I couldn't agree more. It's my life experience too. So thank you for putting words to what I've experienced in that. And I also very much encourage that with men that our feelings need to matter more. We haven't been taught to value them, but it's time to really start to develop a relationship to them and and, and an ability to speak about them and to know them intimately. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Travis, for inviting me to this wonderful discourse. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. It's been a real pleasure. I really Uh encourage people to go grab the book, Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. And if you've been interested in anything that you've heard on this in our conversation today, you have a resource in Thomas out there in the world. I'll put his all of his links in the show notes so that you can find him. But you can also come to my website at travisdoc.com. Again, that's travisdoc.com. You can find me on Instagram at travers03. Or you can just email me directly right at travisdoc03 at gmail.com. I'm also on Patreon. If you want to become a supporter of the the New Masculine podcast, um, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the new masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash the new masculine. Thank you so much, Thomas, again, for joining me. Can I say one more thing? Yes, please. All right. Um, My wife and I, for anyone who needs a little support uh, doing this unlearning process, we do offer telephone uh, telehealth sessions. And I talk about that on the website. So both Victoria and I offer those as well. So, Oh, fantastic. Thank you for really making sure that people know that. I think in the day, in the year, in the life of COVID times and a global pandemic, yeah. it's really important that people know that there are lots of different options for how to yeah, access definitely. their support right. people. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Thomas. Okay. It's been a real pleasure. Be well.